0: All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is part two of episode 337. The episode number for this particular episode is 339, and it is part two of the transhumanism ideas that Jason and I began. Uh, We brought Mr. Wayne McCroy in with us to do this today. Uh, Welcome, Jason.
1: And good morning.
0: Try to keep up. I've been up most of the night. I'm getting to the hard part here. Welcome, Wayne. Good
2: morning, gentlemen. Good to be back here.
0: All right, so we're going to jump in on uh, about, I don't know what, third or a half into the bullet points that Jason and I started. There are so many ideas and bullet points, this could push out to a third part, but let's just jump in. We're picking up on the X Prize, Jason. In
1: 1995, Peter Diamandis establishes the X Prize to fund radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. The board of trustees would go on to include Larry Page and Elon Musk. The XPRIZE website states, A global future-positive movement of over 1 million people and rising. A trusted, proven platform for impact that leverages the power of competition to catalyze innovation and accelerate a more hopeful future by incentivizing radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. Wow, those are some great adjectives they got there
0: isn't it? And notice how they use words like accelerate and innovation things that will make you think of space. Because before we came on the air, uh, I I asked Wayne, Hey man, did anyone ever win the X prize? I thought I did. So we start looking it up. So right now, before I say what I'm going to say, everybody listening, what's thinking in your mind, what's the X prize for? Because when I got here, I have it in my mind that the X prize is directly associated with space as a matter of fact, directly associated with the idea that a non governmental company, this is my memory of the X Prize, was supposed to take a reusable vehicle to the supposed edge of space, come back down and use it in a week or two. So, in my mind, the X Prize was completely branded for space. What Wayne and I just found out is they award that thing every year and it's got nothing to do with space. I guess I won't comment on Rock Diamond, Peter Diamonis or whatever. Um, I was surprised, Wayne, because I, to this day, had it in my mind, the X Prize was about space or supposed space. Yeah, and that's the way that they
2: branded it in the beginning. But you see, when you actually go and look through the years of uh, who and what they've awarded this for, uh, it definitely is not all about space. It's about other things that kind of tie into that whole uh, framework of uh, the development of technologies that they accredit to uh, space exploration and stuff like that. But uh, an important thing about this Peter Diamandis, here's some of the projects or companies that he's been involved with. Zero Gravity Corporation, Angel Technologies Corporation, which was a telecommunications company that uh, worked on wireless broadband communication networks, Space Adventures Ltd., Blastoff Corporation, Rocket Racing League, (laughs) <laughs> Singularity University, Planetary Resources Incorporated, Human Longevity Incorporated, and a company called Cellularity, which is a biotech company that produces allogenic cells and tissues derived from the postpartum placenta. Uh-huh. So you could see all the things that this guy uh, has been involved in. And he's uh, the head of this uh, board of trustees that awards this X Prize to these different uh different companies and different uh, people exploring these different technological aspects of things. And it's all done under the auspices of, quote unquote, space, as we discussed off air here. So, you know, that being the case, you can see how they're trying to steer your mind uh, in this direction where uh, the exploration of space is related to all these different technological innovations. And it's important to do this. And you can see how uh, by just by looking at the awards and stuff, this uh, this uh, group gave out for this X Prize, this X Prize Foundation, uh, how all these different space quote unquote space technologies tie together into the whole transhumanist uh, kind of a philosophy here. So that's kind of where they're going with it, by the looks of it. They they seem to be uh, combining all these different technological innovations together under this umbrella of the X Prize, and uh, we always associate. The X Prize uh, with space, because that's what it, it initially uh, was founded for. And since then, they've awarded it for all kinds of other things that relate more to the transhumanist thing, more so than the space exploration thing.
0: Well, I, you know, Jason, I wanted to cry bait and switch, but to be perfectly on the level and fair, you watch the news and things like that way more closely than I do. I had it in my mind that the X Prize was about space. What was in your mind when we brought up the X Prize? Did you have any inkling that it was about everything but space?
1: I thought it was all about space, that they were trying to uh, have the first non-governmental body able to achieve a reusable rocket or something like that. That's what I thought it was, but I might be shooting from the hip here.
0: Well, we, you know, the initial lookup, I was having trouble find out Then I found, oh, it's awarded this year. It was awarded last year or the year before, but one of them had to do with water. And the other thing was learning for children, something to help them learn to read and write on their own things far away from the idea of space. So maybe it is the bait and switch, but as, as Wayne succinctly points out, a lot of this crosses over into the transhuman agenda, which you're about to lay down.
1: In 1997, an updated version of Natasha Vidamore's The Transhumanist Manifesto is sent with the Cassini Huygens space probe to Saturn.
0: You know, many, many, many decades and moons ago, these kinds of things used to bother me. But now that I know that (laughs) they're not sending anything into space from my point of view, um, it doesn't make me feel like such a puny human as it used to when these people kept claiming they're sending all this stuff out back in the days when I thought, well, there must be life out there of some kind. Um, But what do you think, Wayne? Did you notice the name too? Uh, She's a transhumanist and her name is Natasha More Life, basically. Yes, uh, essentially.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't see this stuff as coincidence at all. Uh, obviously, there's some kind of esoteric encoding going on with this, apparently. Uh, why would you send the transhumanist manifesto to Saturn? <laughs> Think about yeah, that for a minute. Let's send this book into outer space and we'll send it to Saturn. For, for because of purpose?
0: Kubrick. I'm, I'm screaming because <laughs> of Kubrick. <laughs>
2: Yeah, man, it's it's all got an esoteric agenda behind it. That that's for sure. Uh, they're trying to invoke a certain type of uh, uh, natural energy per se uh, with this whole idea, and and that's what it is. It's it's a meta communication between them. It's it's not anything to do with physically actually sending a book on a space probe to Saturn. <laughs> so let's let's get that straight. That's not really what's going on. It's it's something more esoteric encoded in the idea.
0: I You know, when you look at a thing like this logically, basically what they're saying is we're sending these things out into space and the reason we would do that is because there's some alien out there that can get it. And so what we're basically saying here is, by the way, aliens who don't know anything about us, we're human beings that no longer want to be human. We want to be computers or, I I don't know, man. It it baffles the mind. In
1: 1998, philosopher Nick Bostrom founds the world Transhumanist Association with David Pierce. It is later renamed Humanity Plus. (laughs) From their website, Humanity Plus is a non-profit 501c3 educational organization dedicated to elevating the human condition. We aim to deeply influence a new generation of thinkers who dare to envision humanity's next steps. Our programs combine unique insights into the developments of emerging and speculative technologies that focus on the well-being of our species and the changes that we are and will be facing. Our programs are designed to produce outcomes that can be helpful to individuals and institutions. Since its inception as the World Transhumanist Association, along with the pioneering work of Extropy Institute, Humanity Plus has contributed to advancing the public knowledge of how science and technology can and will affect our human future.
0: Can and will. There's a threat, right? It's not maybe this will happen or this thing, you know, can and will. But I don't have much to add here, Wayne. It's like, come on, just the name. Humanity Plus. Really? Really?
2: Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not uh, mincing any words when they're telling you what their agenda is here. Uh, they, they do thoroughly intend, uh, to go for this transhumanist goal to merge man with machine and achieve this technological singularity. And, uh, you know, one of the target dates for that is 2045 as Kurzweil always uh, puts out. Uh, so like these guys here, uh, Bostrom, this Nick Bostrom guy, he's heavily into this whole transhumanist notion. Uh, and he's put out a lot of actually, uh, Really informative uh, papers and books and things like that about transhumanist philosophy and the uh, ways that they intend to use these technologies to uh, progress the human into the next step in human evolution, which would be this human humanity plus or H plus. And uh, we've seen a lot of that language cropping up all over the place in recent years H plus, humanity plus, um, you know, all these things, humanity 2.0. All of these different things, we, we see it cropping up because these people have a whole lot of influence in the scientific community, and uh, they're definitely pushing this thing really hard. Uh, I'm not sure what else to add to it with that bullet point, but uh, basically, uh, they've also done outreaches with other different uh, 501c3 cor- you know uh, type of uh, groups and stuff like that, nonprofits and things like that, where they're also pushing uh, this transhumanist philosophy in different ways. And, uh, more recently, uh, within the past year, year and a half, uh, it's crossed over to the Vatican. The Vatican's actually gotten involved with this whole transhumanist push too, uh, talking about the different ethical concerns and things like that with it. But it's always, always putting the spin on, this is going to be how it is. And, uh, you know, I've actually, uh, speculated a little bit on some of that stuff in my newest book that I had just released. So, you know, the the Vatican getting involved with transhumanism too, uh that that's something we need to have some concerns about because this is crossing over into spiritual things as well as just the physical now. So that being the case that you have people actually sitting and thinking about the ethical implications of some of these things and they've been they've been putting out stuff like that for years now. About the ethical concerns of it and stuff like that, but it always, always steers to uh, actually pursuing this transhumanist goal rather than stepping away from it or saying, hey, you know what, maybe there's something not quite right with this and we should progress very slowly on this and take a step back and, and kind of measure our steps with it. That's never the conclusion they arrive at. It's always full steam ahead with this stuff. Uh, that whatever you know ethical concerns they come across with it, they always, yeah, well, the science is, you know, it, it is more beneficial than the ethical concerns is always the conclusion they come to with it. So that being the case, uh, they get uh, different places like the Vatican involved in trying to justify their actions. and that's kind of what's been going on. And they do this also with these other different uh, nonprofit uh, organizations and what would you call it, philanthropic organizations. Uh, they, they have a lot of pool with many of those as well. And they, they're all connected to big money.
0: Well, Jason, in part one, uh, included in the bullet points that much of the transhumanist staff, if that's what we're going to call them, uh, are atheists. And you bring up the Vatican. I don't know how you claim to accept or anything about a creator. If you're going to be involved in transhumanism, uh, it it blows the mind. Does anyone get the impression that they think they're better than us? They think they're better than God or the creator or however it is that we came here. That's pretty clear. We're saying humanity plus, and you know, humanity 2.0. This is completely pulling the biological creation into computer code to call something a plus or a point two, or just go ahead and call it H. And as we pointed out so many times, that H is an eight, and that always represents the idea of time and space.
1: In 2000, after Y2K doesn't happen, artificial intelligence theorist Eleazar Yadkowski establishes the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence, which will then become the Center for Applied Rationality, the Singularity Institute, and finally, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. It is a non-profit research institute focused since 2005 on identifying and managing potential existential risks from artificial general intelligence. The Institute's work has focused on a friendly AI approach to system design and on predicting the rate of technology development.
0: You know, this bullet point kind of underscores the problem with technology, because so many people don't have a grasp on any level of tech or how the internet works, that things like Y2K can happen. Now, let's be fair. Back at the year 2000, when they pushed this nonsense, they were telling everyone, well, all the computers are going to break. We did our dates wrong. We've got millions of Fortran coders out there furiously going through millions of lines of code. And the real disconnect back then was the tech was rather new. In the year 2000. It certainly wasn't in every single business everywhere, never mind every single pocket anywhere. And the follow on after the Y2K in this paragraph shows the same idea. Um, they're using the befuddlement of those who don't know a lot about technology to just kind of whisk it on in. And by the way, how in the hell? Did anyone ever fall for y two k wouldn't it have been very simple thing to simply go in and test the code and see if it crashed? I mean, we are a gullible gullible breed. What do you say, Wayne? Uh, I think uh, y two k was
2: was a test of the uh, general public's knowledge of these technologies. <laughs> so uh, basically, I-, I think they They push that whole notion just to see, hey, will these people catch on and realize that this whole two digit uh, number bit isn't really all that big of a deal and that it would be easy to just switch the code or are they going to buy into it and panic? And sure enough, a lot of people bought into it and panicked. And that showed these people that are are at the top uh, tiers of pushing these technologies forward that uh, the public at large is Largely clueless about how some of this stuff works, so that they could go ahead and make whatever claims they want and people would believe it. Uh, so, I think that plays a lot into the manipulation of society that's been going on uh, with these technologies as well. They could make these different claims about technologies, and most of the public wouldn't have a clue of whether or not they're telling the truth, first of all. And second of all, wouldn't bother to even look into it. Uh, so, that being the case, they see this as a mechanism for control. So they could claim, well, we have such and such technology and we've developed this and that. And, and how many times do we see this on a daily basis? If you follow any kind of uh, news or social media or anything like that, they're always saying, oh, well, this uh, institute or whatever came up with this uh, treatment for cancer that's showing a lot of promise and this and that. And in a few years, it'll be rolled out and in, in all of this. And it never comes to fruition, does it? So- like, th- this is the whole game they play. Let's, let's put this out there and see if people bite on it. If they believe it, we'll offer them some false hope for something or another. And uh, that being the case, we'll see if, if they really believe what we're telling them. So once again, it comes down to the whole idea of keeping the public at large clueless as to what the state of technology is for real. And, you know, at the same time, controlling narratives. And that's what a lot of this is about. It's about controlling narratives. Uh, so that being the case, um, the technological innovations and stuff that they do have, it's really hard for us as the general layman in the field to really understand w- what they truly have available to them and what they could actually use, especially when it comes to stuff like artificial intelligence. Um, you know, is it as advanced as they as advanced as they claim, or is it uh, not as advanced as they claim or, Is it working in some other way altogether than how they claim it works? And see, that's the thing. Whereas if you're not directly in that kind of computer field or that kind of field working behind the scenes uh, in these projects, you wouldn't have a clue as to how this stuff works. And Y2K, I think, was a big indicator of that.
0: You know, if I had to venture a guess, um, I'm always questioning how how much power do they actually have? I've come to the conclusion that their ability to peer into the future is a lot more power than they even admit they have, but a lot of the rest of it is just to put up and look at Y2K, by the way, isn't that revelation of method wrapped in? If you walked around to a hundred people in a week and said, check this out, remember Y2K that happened a year before 9-11? Y is seven plus two is nine, K is 11. Uh, I wonder what people's reaction to that would be now. I know what it was back in the day. Everyone's all oh, that's just coincidence, but would they feel the same about that such blatant encoding now? And I suspect they would not. It almost feels to me like we're looking at revelation of the method, very carefully wrapped into this whole thing.
2: Right, and I, I also think it was a test. Hey, could we, we tell these people something and they'll believe it when it sounds ridiculous? If you know anything about it, like think about that. Anybody who knew anything about computer code back in the late 1990s, they would look at this this notion that just because, you know, the year changed to two zeros, like all these computers worldwide are going to shut down. Like it, it doesn't, it, it's not even logical on the face of it. Like, think about it. You're just talking about numbers. Like all you would have to do is just it, like... I don't think it would like reset the computer. It would make the computer crash. It's not logical to think that it would make any of these computers crash just because the digits switched from nine, nine to zero, zero. Think about that, <laughs> you know, it,
0: it, and they, they got people believing that. Actually, it's sequential, Wayne. If you would rolled up to the top number, 99, uh, it would automatically rolled over to zero, zero anyhow. Right.
1: That's what I always thought.
0: What I remember about it is there was not that many coders. And I remember hearing the word Fortran, this old kind of obscure code. But what were you going to say, Jason?
1: That's what I always thought. Why would 99 not just go back to zero-zero? Like that's the next digit as far as the system is concerned, right?
0: Yeah. What they're trying to say is it didn't know that 19 went to two, but uh, it we're, we're kind of arguing in, in a circle here because the whole thing is ridiculous on the face of it. Nothing happened. But yeah, none of it makes any sense. And it also shows how many of us were in diapers when it had anything to do with computers, the numbers game. So all the coders out there were probably laughing. But there weren't that many coders compared to everyone else. As a matter of fact, I know tons of people who filled 50-gallon barrels with rice and all this other stuff. They were so convinced. And this was rampant in some of the biggest churches in San Diego. And I've never quite got that. Some of the biggest prepping I've ever seen comes from churches. And yet you think there's a heaven, but you'll do anything you can not to get there. It just None of it works for me. Yeah, and that's
2: that's what I mean. I think the whole thing was a giant litmus test. Let's see how much the public would really buy into this ridiculous nonsense. And uh, they did their test and found out, by and large, the public bought into the ridiculous nonsense. So that gave them licensure to do other
1: things a year later. In 2002, Elon Musk founds his private space exploration company, SpaceX, which would start taking the center stage on human space travel away from the government organization, NASA.
0: I don't know, man. They need someone to help them out with the naming. We got our X Prize. We got our SpaceX. I'm, I'm making a joke. But, uh, you know, we've talked about this, Jason. I think we did a 12, was it 12 hours or 12 episodes that we covered space? I don't even recall now.
1: We did six space fraud episodes in a row and then touched on it more later on.
0: So that was 12 straight hours in the run we made. And again, by the time people hear this, they'll have heard a twilight language episode from Michael Hoffman. And he goes well into the ideas of truth or consequences, New Mexico, where the supposed spaceport is. Um, this is a put up at a level that kind of boggles the imagination for the simple reason that I think when you and I were covering this way back years ago, Jason, uh, they had failed again And Elon was quoted as saying, turns out space is hard, which is actually echoing a thing that was said in the Apollo missions. But how is it that people can't put together the most simple of ideas? Like, how come nobody can do anything 50 years after we've done a thing? And by the way, you can go on Google Earth and look at that spaceport. It looks like it's, I don't know, a facade, basically. It's crazy, Wayne. Yeah, I would say
2: uh, anything dealing with uh, space, so to say, is a facade of sorts. So, you know, uh, talking about SpaceX in particular here, founded in 2002, there's your 22, uh, you know, your master builder idea. This is where they're trying to shift the focus away from NASA, because I think people at this point, uh, starting in the early 2000s, have kind of discovered what kind of a you know fraud that NASA represents. So they're, they're trying to s- switch away the focus back to the private sector. And in doing that, actually, since NASA is uh, a government organization, um, some of their uh, documentation falls under uh, FOIA law, Freedom of Information Act requests. Uh, whereas if you switch to the private sector, For some of these technologies, that does not qualify for FOIA release. So if anybody wants to find out information about SpaceX, well, a lot of their information is proprietary. So that being the case, you can't find out any information about uh, their missions, their technologies, or the things that they've done. Whereas with NASA, some of that is disclosable through Freedom of Information Act. Uh, So they're shifting the focus away from the government organization so that they could keep their little secrets. And uh, keep everything, once again, tied up in this air of mystery.
0: So here's here's the thing, and I'm going to go one more time, I think one more time, back to the Twilight Language book that we will have just covered and people will have seen by Michael Hoffman. This is why the work that Downer did and Hoffman Matters, he does such a diligently brilliant breakdown of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, which is the name of the place where the fake spaceport is. But he ties it back to an old game show that only us old goats can remember called Truth or Consequences. I think it was with Bob Barker. I don't remember. But truth or consequences. And he, then he does the psychological comparison that shows the game itself, named after this place, which is later going to do the whole we're going to space thing, is priming the human mind to want to be lied to. Uh, it's that therein is the value. And I think we should state it. Um, I'm far away uh, with the death ideas in that research, but it does not matter because it's the underpinnings and the research connections that are. You're not getting them anywhere else. At least I haven't found them. What do you think, Jason?
1: Yeah, that was Richard Branson, by the way, who made the quote, which uh, we have mocked over and over and over again because Mm -hmm. he was having so many failures with Virgin Galactic. And both him this week, as well as Amazon's Jeff Bezos, have done the not-quite-space launch of their individual commercial space programs, finally. So I guess everyone can start ponying up for hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of tickets, right?
0: Yeah, just the rich people that are going to get fake tickets that are never going to get cashed until the film gets good enough to fool anyone, I would say. Um, But Wayne and I just looked at this, too. And what was it, Wayne? Uh, Do you remember how many miles I said they went? Uh, It was like 60 kilometers or something like that. It was. No, no, no. That's that's the that's one of the lookups for where space starts. The Carmen line, they went above that. Like 93 miles
2: or something, I think it was. It was something yeah. in the 90-mile range.
0: Yeah, And we're, we're back to this. Where the hell does space start? So the Kármán line, you could look it up, whatever they're calling that right now, which I think is more like an average distance. But typically, back in the day, about 60 kilometers, if I'm not mistaken, was a big deal. And they went well beyond 60 kilometers. So there's this, it's just none of it makes sense. None of it, none of it.
1: In 2004, Nick Bostrom and James Hughes established the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, which publishes the Journal of Transhumanism. The Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies is a nonprofit think tank which promotes ideas about how technological progress can increase freedom, happiness, and human flourishing in democratic societies. We believe that. Technological progress can be a catalyst for positive human development, so long as we ensure that technologies are safe and equitably distributed. We call this a techno-progressive
0: orientation. My word. So as long as we ensure that they're equitably distributed, let's just look at the idea of a private corporation taking over what NASA did based on what Wayne said. Even though they're quasi-governmental, there are some avenues where you can apply the heat, the idea of voting, although we all know better than that, and freedom of information, other things you can do to put heat on a governmental organization. But the space idea done by a corporation underscores that equitable distribution of anything is unimpossible. It's just not a possible thing anymore. Is Amazon sharing all its wealth? Is Google sharing all its wealth? Is that all being equitably distributed? Or are we seeing censorship and some of the biggest paychecks that we can imagine for all time? But the more that I look into the transhumanized idea, it just feels like eugenics. And the more I try to reason out why anyone would be involved in this, it feels like I'm coming back to the RH idea again. There's some negative RH factor blood type that they feel are the original humans, everyone else got to go. And I'm, I'm guessing, I'll, I'll be honest, uh, I'm basing this on research and logic, trying to figure out why would anyone participate in this? But that's where I've landed. Well, just
2: to back up what you're saying, uh, there are pro-transhumanists out there, and there's a, uh, a YouTube channel in particular I found. Uh, I forget the name of it, uh, but uh, actually, uh, one of their videos, and this this was very shocking to me, uh, they defined transhumanism as being, and this is their words, I'm going to quote them, quote, transhumanism, well, let me, let me just say, they, they describe transhumanism as, quote, eugenics without coercion, end quote. That's how they describe transhumanism. So that being the case, I mean, absolutely, Uh, eugenics, transhumanism, they go hand in hand. There's no separating the two. Uh, And uh, just to get back uh, to the bullet point, we were just on this Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Uh, It's a think tank group. And boy, some of the papers they put out are very telling as to the things that they want, uh, the, the research they put out. And they, they talk about the ethical concerns for this. And basically, anytime you have any type of an ethics committee uh, talking about these ideas, they're not there to debate whether or not it's a good idea to do it or not. What they're really doing is they're trying to justify doing this. Uh, so, you know, even though they know that a lot of it is morally and ethically wrong to do, they try to set up a position where they can justify their behavior because of, you know, the possible benefits of pursuing these types of technologies. So that's what these committees are out there to do. They're to justify doing the things that they
0: know are morally and ethically wrong. I know Jason's thinking exactly what I had not I had not encountered what you just laid down, but eugenics without coercion is basically operating from the blueprint of Brave New World. I mean, is that where you went Jason? Basically everybody's happy to be where they are in Brave New World. Well, They've told us that we're all going to be happy, even though we're not going to have jack shit. Those are going to have to be some really good drugs, but I imagine they've already got that (laughs) I dotted and that T crossed. Now you can see that they're
1: pulling the noose slowly but surely around us. And this last 18 months or so has just been an excuse for them to make sure everything gets put right where they need it to be. Because once they control everything and control it digitally, mind you, uh, we're kind of screwed at that point, as long as the people keep going along with it anyway.
0: Well, I haven't read Brave New World in like a long, long time. It's one of the books that I reference a lot that I have not read within the last 10 years, maybe even longer than that. Um, but the way I remember it, and hopefully I'm remembering correctly, is a big part of that blueprint is based on a drug called Soma, or at least that's a big part of having everybody be more than willing. But think about the ideas there. You're planned to be born attractive or you know, sexually active, or you're not. You're planned to be not so attractive and a worker and not very tall. Um, And yet the way they lay it down in that blueprint is everyone's more than happy with what they've got. And they also imply that the mental capacity is adjusted accordingly. But I, that's, that's truly shocking, Wayne. Uh, Eugenics without coercion. Holy schmoly. In
1: 2005, Nick Bostrom establishes the Future of Humanity Institute with associates Anders Sandberg and Eric Drexler. It is a multidisciplinary research institute at the University of Oxford. Their website states that academics at FHI bring the tools of mathematics, philosophy, and social sciences to bear on big picture questions about humanity and its prospects.
0: You know, it's kind of astonishing to me that you can drop big words like this university, Oxford, or Cambridge, and then everything that follows out of your mouth is acceptable because these are such hoity-toity, high and mighty places, and they have a track record of doing things that affect the whole world. As a matter of fact, some of the biggest sci-fi books we know of come out of these universities. I'm assuming we're talking about the British Oxford here. Um, It doesn't say, but, but here's the point. What authority do they have to make decisions about the future of humanity? And what about all the parts of humanity that are far away from Western ideas and languages and technologies? And so you can see the one-sided nature just on the very face of the description you're given here. Yeah, man. And this
2: multidisciplinary research, this includes all all these different uh, big things like biotechnology, cybernetics. Don't forget cybernetics. That's a huge part of the whole transhumanist notion. Uh, Cybernetics is is at the core of all things transhumanist because that's the science of systems control. And that's what it's all about. They're trying to define and uh, quantify these different systems of the human uh, body and the human mind and put them all together into this uh, different multidisciplinary research to figure out ways and methods of control for these things. So that being the case, I mean, you know, that's what they're looking at for these transhumanist type technologies. And that's what they're talking about when they're speaking of multidisciplinary research. They're talking about fields like psychology, uh, neurobiology, biology, uh, cybernetics, uh, computer science, all these different things all tied together Uh, and uh, nanotechnology, too. Uh, That's an important asset or facet of this whole thing as well. So that's what they're talking about when they're talking about these multidisciplinary
1: uh, researches. In 2006, Peter Thiel, a German-American billionaire entrepreneur and venture capitalist who was a co-founder of PayPal, Palantir Technologies, and Founders Fund, and was the first outside investor in Facebook, donates $100,000 to the Machine Intelligence Research Institute and joins its board. Thiel also pledges $3.5 million to the Methuselah Mouse Prize Foundation to find a cure for aging.
0: (laughs) Methuselah, if I'm not mistaken, that would be the oldest living supposed human being from the Bible. And I'm going to take a shot from memory. I think it's like 999 years or something like that. It was 969
2: years. Ah, 69 years.
0: So um, let's get back to the words have meaning idea. So not only is this guy in on PayPal, he founds a place called Palantir. Uh, I'm going to step out on another limb. The only Palantir I've ever heard of is lifted from Lord of the Rings and Gandalf the White, not Gandalf the Gray, well, both, but Gandalf the White, the head of that sect, informed everyone don't mess around with this thing. It's dangerous and evil, right? That's where the all-seeing eye is, um, looking to take over Middle-earth. But how is it? That you could be an outside investor in facebook then get involved in machine intelligence and that all that won't be wrapped together at some point for the benefit of gee i don't know who anyhow Wayne. yeah man uh,
2: just the term palantir technologies i mean all these things uh, this whole twilight language idea it's always always wrapped up in these names that they they put uh, on these different projects and stuff so when you're looking at this peter thiel guy uh, he's got a lot of uh, lot of clout in a lot of different places, and he's put a lot of different monies into these various transhumanist type technologies as well. Uh, so he's one of the movers and shakers that really kind of push this whole agenda along. Uh, so you know, and he does so through you know financial donations to these things, through these different think tank groups and things like that. So uh, you could see how it's always these same couple of people. And uh, they always put their little esoteric encoding on everything that they name, all these different projects and companies and everything that they found. So uh, that being the case, uh, you know, you could see the intent behind a lot of it.
0: You know, I I don't recall, and I know you probably do, is M- Methuselah did not die. It's described as he went to walk with God. Am I thinking of the right guy or am I missing?
2: No, you're, you're thinking of Enoch. Actually. Enoch.
0: So Methuselah actually dies, right? Right. So there you have it. The Methuselah last is going to be a cure for aging, and they're naming it after a guy that actually died. He lived a very long life, as many of those Old Testament characters did, but I'm just saying.
2: Right, but, but the inference there is there's still death the idea of death encoded in this. So, you know, and when you, you look at how long did Methuselah live 969 years? Well, if you just do a little presto change or rearrange on those numbers, you come up with a six, 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 don't you? So of course, I mean, so you, you could see the intention encoded in a lot of this just by using these meanings. So even though Methuselah, he had longevity, so they're saying, you know, long life, but still the death idea encoded in it. Because when it comes down to it, uh, the people at the top most of these transhumanist ideas and uh, these different philosophies that they push, it's a, it's a death cult. And that that's the, what runs the world is this giant death cult. Uh, so all these ideas are tied up in death, the, like the corporation, all of this. We've discussed this stuff endlessly. It's all tied up in the idea of death. So they always have to have that death idea in there. So they can't really talk about, uh, say, quote unquote, immortality uh, in a uh, sincere type way. Uh, Let's put it this way. It's disingenuous when they're talking about uh, a cure for aging or living forever. It's disingenuous and they know it, Uh, but they are trying to uh, lengthen their lifespans. They, They know that they can't necessarily Cure death or aging, but they can try their very best to fight it back as long as they can and hope that they could maybe someday be able to overcome that through the use of these artificial technologies. And that's what they're they're pushing towards. Uh, so that's the case. I mean, you could see, like I said, that they always pick uh, the most appropriate uh kind of a name for many of their projects and many of their companies and stuff like that. It's always encoded esoterically because these people, at the end of the day, it always ties back to occultic roots, all of this stuff. Uh, Whether people want to believe that or not, all this science, this so-called science they push forward, has its roots back in occultism and ancient philosophy and the ancient mystery schools. Uh, and that's what I've found through many, many, many years of research into this stuff. They always try to tie it back to some alchemical idea or natural science idea, but they they put their little twist on it and invert it, uh, you know, 180 degrees so that it's actually the opposite of what was originally intended with these natural sciences and stuff like that. So that you see, they take the idea of Methuselah, long life, and they invert and twist that to represent the death idea
0: once again. And why a mouse? And by the way, that would be MM, which would be 13 and 13, which would break to 44, just to make a point, but there you go. I, I'm sitting here. I know there's a, there's probably a whole story. We should look at this at some point, see if we could do an episode on it. But why is it a mouse? Is this coming down to the like C60 claim that a rat lived three times longer? It's got to be something like that.
2: Uh, Mickey Mouse—that's another MM—and you know, it, there's the mouse idea. Always, always the mouse idea. There's something to it, and we should probably look at that. I'm sure there's got to be some kind of mythology or mythological breakdown of a story about the mouse uh, that might be very important, and we we'll, we might have to pursue an episode on that at some point.
1: In 2008, Nick Bostrom and Anders Sandberg publish Whole Brain Emulation Roadmap a manifesto for mind uploading. The report laid out a number of technical challenges and paths towards achieving whole brain emulation technology.
0: Well, creator, we got some sad news for you today. You didn't do such an amazing job on the human mind because they can just translate it and upload it right into binary. <laughs> I, I don't have much to add here. It's it's a bit much. It's a bit much.
2: Yeah, I, I actually have this document um, and I, I've read through the whole thing. And some of the ideas that they uh, propose are kind of disturbing, like at at one point in this whole brain emulation roadmap, they suggest that uh, one of the things that they need to do in order to do this is create some kind of uh, nano sensing device uh, that could be implanted into the human brain in real time and uh, slowly replace all the, the neurons. In, in the network with an artificial neuron of sorts, because they think in the scanning process that it's likely that the actual brain cells themselves would be destroyed in the process. So they would have to, as they scan, replace it with an artificial brain cell in its place. And they think they could do this. So that that's one of the, the implications that's made here. That's one of the, the suggestions that they make is um, real-time scanning of the brain and replacing uh, those neurons that this scanning would destroy with an artificial neuron that, you know, <laughs> emulates, emulates what the neuron does. So that's one of the things mentioned in that uh, whole brain emulation roadmap.
0: Let me know when that computer has a moment of clarity or a transcendent moment. You know what I'm saying? Anyhow, I think we're back to uh, Mr. Rock Diamond here. Also in 2008, Peter Diamandis, Ray Kurzweil,
1: and Salim Ismail established Singularity University with funding from Google, Nokia, Autodesk, ePlanet Capital, the XPRIZE Foundation, the Kaufman Foundation, and Genentech. It is an American company that offers executive educational programs, a business incubator, and innovation consultancy service. It is not an accredited university and does not provide traditional university qualifications.
0: Because <laughs> it's not interested in that. It's after the executives got to get them trained up. It's, you know, this this is almost like a one-to-one relation. As we came into the year 2020, what was it, Jason? Was it over 200, close to 300 uh, major corporation CEOs that just swapped? They all,
1: yeah, around 200 years
0: Yeah, something like that. So, you know, that's what you're looking at here. Because when all these corporations own everything, they'll have to merge them together. And you've got to be able to pick up the phone and say to the CEO of some corporation that needs to do a thing for your grand scheme, do this thing. And you got to have them do it. Um, I'm just saying, uh, really. So, Google and all these people are going to fund an educational program. I got news for you, though. The education is just for executives.
2: (laughs) Yeah, man. And not only that, uh, this, uh, Uh, Singularity University, I'm sure, I'm sure that they probably have some kind of a deal going on with DARPA. So (laughs) that being the case, I mean, it's always, it's not about, like they said, it's not about traditional university qualifications. They're not interested in that. Okay. They just want to push forward these technologies Any way that they can, and they will go outside of traditional routes to do so. That's all this is telling you when it says it does not provide traditional university qualifications. They don't care about that. And it's the same thing like Elon Musk says. He doesn't hire people based upon necessarily their qualifications. Uh, If they know a little something about some of these technologies and are actually doing something innovative, he'll hire them to work within one of his companies anyway, regardless of what their qualifications is. So this is taking the focus away from education or these uh, different uh, types of uh, structures, control structures that we're used to. They're making it certain here that they don't care about that anymore. Uh, And a lot of that has to do with the internet age, the information age. Everything's out there for you to learn at the touch of your fingertips. If you want to really learn something, you don't need Uh, to necessarily have some kind of a piece of paper that says you're qualified to do this uh, in order to learn something. And a lot of these people in these uh, higher echelons of these corporations understand that and are willing to work with that because they know that uh, there might be some guy out there who knows a little something more about this than your average college graduate in that particular field. So they'll hire that guy, because he's actually shown results, whereas, uh, you know, the person that's educated through the university has only been shown theory and theoretical science and stuff like that and hasn't actually done anything practical with it. Uh, And it's the same thing holds true for any type of a skilled job, like an electrician or something like that. You could go and take a university course on uh, becoming an electrician on, on electricity and stuff, but it doesn't mean you have the practical skill to be able to put that into use in the real world. And so, you know, when you hire an electrician, who are you going to hire—the the college graduate that just finished his coursework in the, the electrician field—or are you going to actually hire the uh, veteran electrician that's been doing wiring up houses and stuff for the past twenty years? <laughs> Think about that, and and that's kind of the the you know viewpoint they're coming from uh, with this. That's why they don't care
1: about those qualifications. Still, in two thousand eight, Peter Thiel donates five hundred thousand dollars to fund the Seasteading Institute, to establish experimental research facilities in international waters. Thiel will go on to donate over $1 million to the Institute. According to their website, the Seasteading Institute is a nonprofit think tank promoting the creation of floating ocean cities as a revolutionary solution to some of the world's most pressing problems, rising sea levels, overpopulation, poor governance, and more.
0: That's right, because the people who are poorly governing risk getting caught at it someday and they're going to need a secret island to go live on. I mean, come on, what are we saying here? Um, Does anyone recall any mainstream ads anywhere saying, hey man, we're working for all the people. Look at these major floating cities we're building out here. And why is it in international waters also, I would ask. And that tells you why, first of all, it's a corporation and secondarily why it's in international waters. I would almost begin to make the joke, oh, this is where Mason Island is.
2: Well, you also have to look at the justification for building these floating islands, uh, these island cities, or whatever they're trying to promote them as. Uh, they're saying it's to battle some of the world's most pressing problems: rising sea levels and overpopulation. Uh, where's the where's the rising sea level at? Has anybody where's seen that? Where's the population? Where's the where's overpopulation? <laughs> right, that's what I mean. So, like the uh, reasons they give for justification for this are not really any kind of a real justification. It's it's just, like I said, it, these groups that come together to talk about quote unquote ethics, um, all they're doing is just trying to find a, a clever excuse to justify doing what they want to do anyway, whether they know it's morally or ethically correct or not. So that's that's basically it. It's, it's an excuse to go ahead and do this. Uh, yeah, man, the rising sea levels, we have to do this so that we can combat that problem. And no, I don't see rising sea levels anywhere. So, you know, it's not a real justification. It's it's contrived. But they keep saying there is. Right. And if you repeat the lie long enough, eventually people will believe it. So, you know, it's the same thing with overpopulation. That whole thing started back with Malthus back in the late 1700s. Uh, these Malthusian ideas, the idea of overpopulation, not enough resources to go around, blah, blah, blah. All that, it all ties back to that, and it gets directly tied to the eugenics movement in the 1800s. So, with that being the case, I mean, you can see where these ideas come from if you explore them back to their origin points. It, they're all based on faulty ideas. This whole overpopulation idea, rising sea level idea, it's farcical when it comes down to it.
0: Well, look at the name steading. You know, if you go look up the word stead, it'll be something along the ideas of probably a person. Uh, occupied or, or replaced by a successor. Um, So if you look at the way they've named it, it screams all day. Uh, It's a replacement for a successor. Whoever succeeds, it's, it's all a bit much.
2: Right. If you look back at the etymology of the word stead, it's old English stead. It means place. So uh, it would be like a replacement would be like what the meaning would be.
0: All right. So that's hour one of episode 339. This will be the second part of the transhumanism run. I don't know, Jason, we might get another hour after we're done here. We'll just have to see where we come out. I hope everyone will join us at crow777radio.com, crrow 777 radiocom where we breathe the free air of free speech. Jason, do you want to add anything in about what we're going to cover in an hour two?
1: Well, it's interesting. You can see throughout the 2000s how everything picked up on a really fast pace. I guess it was safe for them to do so at that point because, well, the computers didn't all stop working in uh, Y2K.
0: Right. And you know, you make a valid point. The computing power went up and up and up. And since we know that typically it is considered that the general population is a good 50 to 70 some years behind the technology. And we also understand that ARPA was an internet that was fully functional before our internet ever came to be. We know that many computers are probably the same way. And then we get the stories about, quantum computing and all this other stuff that they want to try to boggle our minds with. The point I would make here is every year that we got into the 2000, the ability and the reach were taking quantum leaps to make the pun. And if for no other reason, because of the, well, that's the Palantir idea, the crystal ball idea of having that much data to be able to project The future to a 98% certainty. And this is provably possible, as we have covered with the law of large numbers or the wisdom of the crowd, which are just very basement level proofs that if you had enough data and enough computer to parse the data, the power you would have would be mind-boggling in terms of knowing what's going to happen. But anyhow, join us at Crow Triple Seven Radio for the second part of episode 339 on transhumanism, and I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.